What we're starting to see right now is just the inkling, the daily increases are not in that steep incline. They're starting to be able to possibly flatten out. I'll take it. End of show. Good night, everybody. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today as we continue to be your stay-at-home radio companion. So I received this uh, via text from my cousin yesterday, Desi Doyen. Okay. Day nine of the quarantine. My wife called out from the other room and asked if I ever get a stabbing pain in my chest like someone has a voodoo doll of me and is stabbing it. I replied, no. She responded, how about now? (laughs) Thus, the amusing part of today's broadcast is concluded. I hope you enjoyed it. That was awesome. Okay. (laughs) Uh, No, actually, not really. We've got uh, a Green News report coming up, which is always a laugh riot. Am I correct, Desi? Oh, yes. Yes. Nothing but fun there. We can look forward to that. Not quite as funny, however. The U.S. death toll from the coronavirus has now climbed past 3,600 as of Tuesday, eclipsing China's official count. China, uh, which has how many billions of... Uh, one uh, More than one billion. More than a billion. So uh, we have 300 million in this country. We now have more deaths than China. It also eclipses the number of Americans killed on 9-11. Just to offer a scale to all of this, more Americans killed now by coronavirus than on 9-11. Sadly, as one of the most hard-hit cities uh, in both cases, as uh, once again New York City, which rushed to call for thousands of retired health care workers to volunteer to come and help out the state. So far, some 80,000 have answered that call. So that is uh, somewhat good news amidst uh, a lot of bad. 80,000 have stepped up 
Uh, as well, in uh, the city of New York, uh, they have parked refrigerator morgue trucks on the streets to collect the dead. That's how bad it's getting there. As bad as that is, it was made even worse and more personal for the uh, state's governor, Andrew Cuomo, who reported teary-eyed that his brother, CNN anchor Chris, Chris Cuomo, is also now infected with the uh, COVID-19 disease. And he is, however, quarantined in his basement, uh, reportedly doing okay at the moment. I think he's going to continue doing his show from the basement, from quarantine. The uh, New York governor pronounced the disaster was unlike any other that the city has weathered. He said this is ongoing and the duration itself is debilitating and exhausting and depressing. No kidding. But uh, elsewhere around the world, hard hit Italy reported that the infection rate appears to be leveling off somewhat and that new cases could actually start declining. That is potentially very good news, at least eventually, as the crisis there is far from over. Worldwide, more than 80,000 people have been in, uh, have been infected and over 40,000 have died, according to a tally kept by Johns Hopkins University. New York was the nation's deadliest hotspot, however, with about 15, uh, about 1,550 deaths now statewide. In the smoldering hot spot of Louisiana, the death toll is climbing there as well. It climbed to about 240 on Tuesday. Louisiana and Michigan were running out of ventilators despite promises by the White House of more equipment. Louisiana's governor said the hard-hit New Orleans region is on track to run out of breathing machines by the week's end and hospital beds uh, just one week later. The Trump administration has committed to sending... 150 ventilators from the national stockpile, but the state has not uh, received an arrival date yet for those. And out here in California, we recently received 170 ventilators from the national stockpile. Zero of them actually worked, according to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Michigan said it needs some 5,000 to 10,000 more ventilators. All while as uh, print uh, newspapers around the state are shutting down in Michigan for lack of advertising revenue, even as online readership for many such outlets is going through the roof. We'll be joined by media industry journalist Craig Silverman to discuss all of that shortly. But meanwhile, a senior military general said the uh, Pentagon has not yet delivered any of the 2000 ventilators that it offered to the Department of Health and Human Services two weeks ago because HHS has asked it to wait for some reason while the agency determines where the devices should go. So the Pentagon has 2,000 ventilators sitting there, and HHS is saying, hang on, don't even give them to us, don't even bring them anywhere, we'll let you know when they're needed, where they should go. I mean, I guess we shouldn't be surprised at this point uh, when this is all said and done. I suspect the Trump administration's response to this entire emergency will be seen as one of the most monumentally tragic and ill-conceived, if conceived at all, responses to any emergency of any type in this nation's history. 
We got a brief glimpse of that when uh, CBS News released a telephone call held on Monday between the White House and the nation's governors in which you will hear Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases uh, first uh, asking Montana's Democratic Governor Steve Bullock about his state's ability to do testing and contact tracing of individuals in contact with those found to test positive for the virus. But Bullock notes that they don't have enough tests to do that, that there is still no federal coordination uh, going on for getting test kits. Even we're just test kits, never mind ventilators, just test kits to states that need them, which, by the way, is all of them. And then you will hear the president of the United States on this call jump in to say he don't know nothing about no testing shortages. Seriously. Do you have any system in place that you feel can adequately identify cases and isolate them and contact trace them? Or are the capabilities and resources there that that's not something that you can do given with what you have? Yes, Dr. Fauci, we are trying to do contact tracing, but literally we are one day away if we don't get test kits from the CDC that we wouldn't be able to be tested in Montana. We have gone time and time again to the private side of this, the private market, and where the private market is telling us is that it's the national resources that are then taking our orders apart. Are basically, so we're getting our orders canceled. That's for PPE, that's for testing supplies, that's for testing equipment. So while we're trying to do all the contact tracing, we don't have adequate tests to necessarily do. We don't have the PPE along the way, and we're not finding markets to be able to do that along the way, or private suppliers. So we do have to rely on a national chain of distribution, or we're not going to get it. But we are doing our best to try to do exactly that in, like, if Gallatin County would be an example, where we have almost half of our overall state, those are the positives. So we're trying to shift the supplies to really isolate that and do the contact tracing, but we just don't have enough supplies to even do the testing. Uh, Tony, uh, you can answer it if you want, but I haven't heard about testing in weeks. We've tested more now than any nation in the world. Uh, we've got these great tests, and we come out with another one tomorrow where it's, uh, you know, it's almost instantaneous testing. Uh, but I haven't heard about testing being a problem. So that was uh, Donald Trump, president of the United States at the end, saying that he has not uh, heard anything about testing being a problem. What? Testing's a problem? After the governor of Montana is saying, look, the federal government is not helping out. We're trying to go to the private market, the free market, and uh, they're not helping either. But is the president just lying there when he says he does not know anything about a testing shortage? I mean, I know about it. Why doesn't he know about it? He he must know, right? Or, or are they actually keeping even that from him so as not to upset President Manbaby. Is that what's going on? Does he actually not know about these things? That's the scariest part is that, well, actually, it's all scary. No matter how you look at it, if he doesn't know or if he's lying about it, he doesn't know because they're not telling him or yeah. he's lying about it because he thinks it'll make him look bad and he doesn't care about what happens to people in Montana. It's uh, I or mean, anywhere, really. Again, oh, he doesn't care about any of them anywhere. He cares about himself. 
I mean, this has been a, a weeks long, a months long problem when it comes to test kits, but also to uh, PPE, personal protective equipment for medical workers, mask, glo- gowns, gloves, also ventilators where there are either shortages or states can't get them from private companies because other states are outbidding them or because the feds are snatching them all up but not distributing them where they need to go. All because nobody, nobody is driving this ship. There is no national leadership to simply nationalize the supply chains for this critical equipment. Now, months into this pandemic, for his part, Dr. Fauci sort of confirmed some of the points that we uh, noted yesterday on this show, that the rate of increase in illness in, in some areas, at least, of the country for now, Uh, seems to be decreasing, even as it's still increasing, but just moderately less so than it had been, which he describes as an inkling of good news. We'll take it, suggesting that physical distancing does, in fact, seem to be working as terrible as it uh, as it certainly is for many people. Britain is reporting similar today, where the number of dead reached nearly 1,800. The medical director of the National Health Services Operations in England said there is evidence that the social distancing there is working. And China, where there was some very serious social physical distancing going on for many months, has reported now just one new death from the coronavirus and uh, 48 new cases. They say all of them came from overseas. So, yes, there are some encouraging signs out there that this thing is defeatable if physical distancing measures continue. Donald McNeil at The New York Times, who's been doing some amazing work on this pandemic, offers uh, another ray of light uh, today. He writes, harsh measures, including stay-at-home orders and restaurant closures, are contributing to rapid drops in the number of fevers, a signal symptom of uh, most a signal symptom of most coronavirus infections recorded in states across the country, according to intriguing new data produced by a medical technology firm. The new data offers Evidence in real time that tight social distancing restrictions may be working, potentially reducing hospital overcrowding and lowering death rates. The company, Kinsa Health, produces Internet-connected thermometers, and they first created a national map of fever levels on March 22nd. Since then, data from the health departments of New York State and Washington State have buttressed their findings, making it clear that social distancing is, in fact, saving lives. Their thermometers upload the user's temperature readings to a centralized database from all over the country, and the data enabled the, com- the uh, company to track fevers across the U.S. Kinza has more than one million thermometers in circulation, and they've been getting about 162,000 daily temperature readings since COVID-19 began spreading in the country. The uh, company normally uses that data to spread uh, to track the spread of the flu. But since uh, 2018, when it had more than half a million thermometers distributed, its predictions for the flu have routinely been two or three weeks ahead of the information, the predictions that come from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, which gathers flu data on patient symptoms from doctors' offices and hospitals. So once it's already been diagnosed and treated, but this information comes several weeks earlier. 
To identify clusters of coronavirus infection, Kinsa recently adapted its software to detect spikes of a, what they call atypical fever that does not correlate with uh, the historical flu patterns and are likely attributed to, attributable to the coronavirus. And so as of last Wednesday, the company's live map showed fevers holding steady or dropping almost universally across the country, with just two exceptions. One was a swath uh, of uh, New Mexico, where the governor has issued stay-at-home orders, but only just the day before they uh, put this data out, and in adjacent counties in southern Colorado. So that was one continuing hotspot. The other was a ring of uh, Louisiana parishes surrounding New Orleans but about 100 to 150 miles away from it. That presumably was caused by the outward local spread of the explosion of infections in New Orleans that we're seeing that uh, officials think began uh, by the crowds at Mardi Gras this year. So that was on Wednesday. But by Friday morning, fevers in every county in the country were on a downward trend depicted in four shades of blue on the map. Fever... Fevers were, were dropping, especially rapidly in the West. The parts of New Mexico and Colorado that had been slightly warm on Wednesday were in light blue by the end of the week, indicating that they were cooling. So were the Louisiana counties. So all of this is good news. By Monday morning, more than three quarters of the country was deep blue. A separate display of the collective national fever trend, which had spiked upward to a peak on March 17, had fallen so far that it was actually below the band showing historical flu fever trends, which means that the lockdown was not only uh, helping to uh, slow the spread of COVID-19, but also helping to slow the spread of the flu. And they were able to break it down in a number of cities and see that uh, it wasn't just, uh, you know, uh, mayors or governors declaring national uh, uh, declaring, you know, states of emergency. But it was actually the stay at home orders that made the difference. Closing restaurants and bars and asking people to stay home produced dramatic results in all three of those specific cities uh, where they shared the data with The New York Times. Um, so that may be a leading indicator that the curve may soon be flattening, even if we uh, are all still several away, several weeks away from that happening. And, and, and even thereafter, none of this is going to end anytime soon. But it could be getting less worse, maybe even better. Hey, less bad is still better than bad. In a couple of weeks, right. which, which means as uh, the economic consequences begin to come clearer, people are going to realize that there really is no actual plan for how to move forward beyond this and that the $2.2 trillion stimulus corporate bailout giveaway is uh, is really a drop in the bucket uh, to the unprecedented economic disruption that the U.S. and the world are now facing with nobody steering this ship or even preparing the populace for any of this. At least not out loud, at least not with a president whose sole interest is in himself and in his reelection. So the last thing that he wants to do is, you know, level with the American people about how bad this thing is actually going to to get. Presuming, by the way, that even he understands that himself in his own little pea brain or with what his advisors are, you know, allowed to tell him about all of this. 
So the media, in the meantime, are largely focused on just the immediate circumstances, reporting what is going on right now and how we're going to get through it. The White House is focused on Trump's reelection and wherever they are acting uh, to deal with the crisis. They're constantly playing catch up weeks and months late now at this point with seemingly nobody discussing, uh, much less planning for the long term of this. I noted on yesterday's broadcast that nobody is steering the ship at the federal level, it feels like, which means we are not hearing the full extent of what the coronavirus is 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 likely to be on the economy. And of course, I hope I'm just totally wrong about all of that. And I'm just speaking out of fear of the unknown. And maybe I am. But I think this is going to be much worse than people are discussing. And, you know, Talking Points Memo founder Josh Marshall, who is not exactly prone to sky is falling freakouts, you know, like me, (laughs) he shared this comforting little nugget on Monday night. A new estimate from economists at the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis project total COVID-19 crisis employment reductions at 47 million people. That would translate into a 32 percent unemployment rate. And for perspective, he notes that the peak unemployment during the Great Depression was 24.9. We're talking about potentially 32 percent here. That, of course, is wildly higher, he notes, than anything seen during the Great Recession, which uh, when the unemployment spiked to 10 percent. Now, there's a number of caveats here. It's a back of the envelope projection. It doesn't take into account the, uh, the the stimulus bill that just passed and what effect that may have. But he notes for all all of this, though, these are stunning numbers that put some estimates to the scale of a truly historic public health and economic crisis. That uh, impact is already being felt in a number of places, a number of industries, but one very troubling place is the news industry, as newspapers and other independent media outlets who were already in precarious financial shape, many of them before this began, they are among the first to feel the immediate impacts of this, uh, and at a time when good journalism is really needed. And ironically, it is receiving more eyeballs than ever right now. Longtime media industry watchdog Craig Silverman has been reporting on how newspapers, independent radio and TV outlets are just getting hammered and going under at an alarming rate right now. He joins us next on the broadcast with that cheery news and uh, what we can all actually try to do about it. I'm Brad Friedman. Please don't touch that dial. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Oh boy, indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. CNG Newspapers is a family-owned company which publishes 19 local newspapers across the great state of Michigan, particularly in the suburbs outside of Detroit, like 
the uh, Birmingham Bloomfield Eagle, the Gross Point Times, the Farmington Press, the Warren Weekly, and about 15 others. CNG announced that the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, still really in its infancy across much of the country just one week ago, had already taken a toll on their business, particularly in Metro Detroit. Uh, they announced one week ago for the safety of their employees and, uh, according to a public statement, in an effort to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, C&G announced that they were temporarily suspending print publication of all 19 of its direct mail newspapers that the company has run since 1981. So, yeah, 40 years. In a publicly released statement, the company's editorial director announced, we plan to resume publishing our print editions within two to four weeks, while cautioning, however, that this situation is fluid and changing every day and that people can continue to find local news online at cngnews.com for the 45 communities that CNG newspaper serves. According to the statement, the Deemers family, which owns the company, hopes to soon resume its valuable relationship with local advertising partners, who supply the revenue that supports CNG's professional community journalism. CNG, of course, is hardly alone. Craig Silverman of BuzzFeed News reported early last week that alternative weeklies in the U.S. and Canada have laid off staff and curtailed print editions. In the U.K., the Time Out and Stylus magazines announced a temporary, temporary halt to print editions. So did one in Rhode Island. In New Orleans, the merged Times-Picayune and Advocate newspapers furloughed a tenth of their staff and have the rest working just four days a week now. A newspaper in Vermont laid off 20 of its 42 staffers. And papers in West Virginia, California, and Florida have also seen layoffs. Of course, it's not just a problem in the U.S. and U.K. and Canada. Two local Australian papers, the Yarram Standard and the Great Southern Star, announced that they would be shuttering in the face of sharp drops in ad revenue. With the, one of its journalists noting that the Yarram Standard has been in publication for more than 120 years at least until now. Nor is it uh, just community outlets, by the way, and independent alt-weeklies. Even the New York Times warned in early March that its ad revenue would take a big hit. And last week, industry watchdog Digiday reported that 88% of legacy and digital publishers that they surveyed expect to miss their business targets this year. Well, I should say so. And again, those are just numbers from last week, which, as you may recall, was about a thousand years ago. Silverman's piece at BuzzFeed is headlined, The Coronavirus is a Media Extinction Event. But sure, BuzzFeed is somewhat famous for its eyeball-grabbing headlines, but that description does not come from BuzzFeed, but from Ken Doctor, a news industry analyst with Newsonomics, who is quoted in Silverman's piece, with Doctor noting that newspaper advertising revenue is getting just wiped out and that for some publications, this seems like it is the full extinction event. All of this, ironically enough, as Silverman also notes, online readership is through the roof for many of those very same publications. Really? Joining us now, ironically or otherwise, is BuzzFeed News Media Editor Craig Silverman. Craig Silverman, welcome to the broadcast, sir. 
Thank you very much. I, uh, you know, I've been discussing a bit uh, between apocalyptic coronavirus headlines over the past week or so on this show. My concerns about the independent media outlets, both newspapers and, yes, local independently run uh, radio and even TV outlets and their ability to survive this crisis. Your piece that I was uh, cribbing from just now there, that's more than a week old. I'm guessing the outlook is no brighter a week later, Craig. No, the, the downward trend, the bad news has continued. Um, you know, now we've got the, some of the biggest newspaper chains in the U.S., like Gannett. Mm-hmm. Um, just yesterday, they've announced they're doing unpaid newsroom furloughs for one week a month. One week a month. So mm-hmm. people making more than $38,000 a year at Gannett Papers in April, May, and June are going to basically, you know, be off and unpaid for one week a month. Um, other major newspaper chains, similar kinds of things. Los Angeles Times is significantly cutting back on its print sections Monday to Friday. Other newspapers are getting rid of print editions Monday to Friday entirely. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are saying, you know, this is, this is for April, this is for May, this may, may go beyond that. But one of the things that's kind of a big takeaway from this is, um, you know, when the, when the financial crash happened in 2008, 2009, newspapers lost about 19% of their revenue, and mm-hmm. that revenue never came back. Yeah. So the chances that um, particularly, you know, print-oriented publications, even if they have a digital side, the chances that they, you know, start these print editions again, the chances that everybody comes back, unfortunately, um, history tells us they're not going to get that revenue back to the same degree. And that's for uh, companies that are already in many ways debt-laden and distressed. Mm-hmm. This this could really push them over the edge. Yeah, and you know, you were talking about uh, just now, uh, Gannett, L.A. Times, and so forth. I mean, these are big media companies that you would think would be better able to to, to handle a downturn like this. But I mean, we we saw it uh, immediately a few weeks ago in some of these smaller papers, these free alt weeklies out there, for example. Their entire revenue base uh, is based on movies, uh, concerts, restaurants, art shows, live events, and so forth. Events Things that pretty much simply do not exist anymore. Are, are they the ones feeling the first brunt of all of this the hardest, and then we're seeing it spread into the into the larger companies? Yeah, I, I do think that the alternative weeklies are kind of the canaries in the coal mine, and, and the reason for that is they a lot of alt weeklies have already gone out of business in many parts in Canada and the United States. Mm-hmm. In Canada, we have just a few left. Um, in the United States companies that at one point, you know, had many alternative weeklies in many parts of the country, they're down to just a handful. And so I think you've got companies that were already on on their last legs, already struggling. And when, as you just described, when their entire advertising base of, you know, bars, restaurants, events, mm-hmm. all of that literally just stops all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, that is a catastrophic event. And so I, I really don't think a lot of uh, these alt weeklies are going to be able to come back. I think a lot of the very small newspapers, especially that are part of chains or especially that, you know, had debt, um, they may not be able to come back. And, and, you know, I should also say, I mean, digital, it's not like digital organizations are completely untouched. I'm getting a pay cut at BuzzFeed in yeah. April and in May because in order to avoid layoffs, our management decided that, you know, everyone would take a pay cut and our CEO is not being paid for April and May and they're going to reevaluate it in May. Maybe this ends as of the end of May or maybe that pay cut is going to continue into June. So mm. there is a lot of pain 
being distributed around media, but I do think the kind of legacy print operations are the ones who are in the most danger. And and yet you report uh, the irony here is that online readership is actually way up, sometimes four and five fold at many of these very same publications. And that and, and, and I presume that's down the line. The big publications and the small ones, even the community papers, the Alt Weekly, uh, they're seeing uh, increases online, either due to the need for local journalism in the midst of a global pandemic or the fact that so many are now home with with time to go online. I don't know. But why isn't online advertising making up for the print advertising loss or is online advertising also disappearing for these independent outlets? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, the cruel uh, situation that we're in right now, where right now, of course, people are hungry for the latest quality information about what's going on with the coronavirus. And they're going to news organizations to get that information, largely in, you know, in the mm-hmm. digital realm. And so traffic is skyrocketing across the board, not just in news, but also in lifestyle and other places, because as you say, we've got we've all got time to kill at home. Right. And so um, what's happening is that, you know, a lot of companies, big advertising spending companies, in some cases, they're pulling back the amount they're spending because, you know, depending on their business, like if you're an airline, why are you going to advertise when nobody's getting on planes right now? Right, so right. Th- some of them, some big spenders are pulling back advertising, you know, cars, uh, automobile dealerships, that kind of thing. And so some of that money is coming out of the ecosystem. At the same time, there's all of this, you know, traffic happening, which means more ability to run ads. And so what has happened is basically the price of the average digital ad has fallen because you've got tons and tons of supply and you have less demand and also less of the high quality demand. And so I talked to the um, CFO of the Seattle Times Mm -hmm. and he said that, you know, the the price of their average digital ad is about 40 percent less than it was before the the big coronavirus stuff hit. And so, yes, lots of traffic, lots of audience. That's great, except it's much harder to monetize it. And fewer of the big spending brands are really spending what they used to. So in some cases, you're getting really junky, low-quality ads that people who are willing to pay less are going to place. And then there's this other issue that you write about in in sort of a follow-up this week. Some advertisers have halted their online spending altogether. Others have turned to keyword blocking to stop their ads from showing up next to articles about the coronavirus. Uh, You write about that in that uh, follow-up this week at BuzzFeed News. First, uh, why would they do that? Why would they block their uh, ads from showing up on a page uh, concerning coronavirus? Uh, And and second, aren't those the pages with the most surging traffic that we're seeing and therefore the most valuable? I mean, doesn't that make all of this just much worse? Yeah, it, I mean, it does. And also, as you're describing it, I'm sure that you're scratching your head and people listening to it are scratching their head and saying, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Right. Tons of people are online. Tons of people are reading about it. Why wouldn't you want to get your ads in front of people doing that? Mm-hmm. And so there's this term in the world of digital advertising called brand safety, where you don't want your ads showing up in sort of quote unquote unsafe environments. So like the clear example of that is you don't want it showing up on a porn site, for example, mm-hmm. right? But also, brands are often creating lists of keywords or using from a third-party list of keywords to avoid being next to content about, you know, uh, a gruesome murder or that kind of thing. And so what's happened is that coronavirus has quickly, for one of the the third-party companies I've talked to that facilitates this kind of stuff, they said it's quickly become the most uh, blocked keyword of of any being used. It's bigger than Trump, which was previously the one. They wanted to avoid, you know, divisive politics. And so you have brands who just sort of turn this on thinking, yes, let's let's get out of contentious downer kind of news 
and let's be on other places. But the news right now is dominated by the coronavirus, and people want to read it, and that's what news organizations are dedicating their resources to. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the denial of, I would say it's at least, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars of revenue in March alone to news sites because of this kind of indiscriminate keyword blocking. And I think a lot of brands are being, you know, made aware of this. Um, they want to support quality media in a lot of cases. Their agencies are aware of this. So I'm hoping that we're going to see a bit of a downturn in this indiscriminate keyword blocking as we get into April. But March was insane in terms of the amount of ads that were being blocked. We're talking about getting into really you know, the billions of ads that were being blocked in March, and that is absolutely lost revenue for news sites. And, you know, I can, in one sense, I can understand uh, they may not want to advertise, maybe, on a, on a page that refers to Donald Trump, thinking that, oh, it's divisive, it's uh, politics, whatever, but uh, coronavirus, for crying out loud, I mean, I, I don't understand why a company that sells widgets would not like to show up on the New York Times uh, highly read story about the coronavirus uh, is it are they suggesting that somehow the widget company is tainted by being on the same page with a story about coronavirus? You know, the reality is that it's just there's a lack of, of thought going on here. It's a very blunt instrument that a lot of brands are applying, thinking, well, you know, we'll, we'll place our ads elsewhere. We'll avoid this stuff. We'll avoid that stuff. And so what I think we've got with the coronavirus situation where you have media in a desperate situation for revenue and also providing a really essential, important service, you have a lot of brands realizing, saying, oh, okay, our standard practices are really harming the information ecosystem right now. Mm -hmm. And so this may be a wake-up call to what has been a very kind of, um, you know, just, just set it and forget it uh, type of brand safety that some brands are doing. The reality is there are some coronavirus stories that probably you don't want your brand next to. But you can control that through tools and through other ways. And so it's really, in a, in a sense, I think it's really the laziness of brands and agencies and some of the companies they work with of saying, we'll just block everything rather than actually taking the time to think about the context of when their ads should appear. So I hope that this is, again, the wake-up call for them. And they start to think about being more contextual and also realizing that, you know, just because your ad shows up next to a story about the coronavirus, that's not going to taint your brand. And in fact, there's probably a lot of ads that should show up next to that content that are relevant. Well, uh, do you, you quote David Cohen, the uh, president of the industry group Interactive Advertising Bureau, uh, charging the blocking ads on coronavirus uh, content pages threatens public safety. How so? Is that just because it, it threatens to harm the businesses that are actually doing the important reporting on the pandemic? Is, is that basically what he's referring to there? Yeah, but the, the point that he's making is that in a situation like this, in a situation of a pandemic where, you know, good quality information can literally save lives, can keep people in their houses, can help them, uh, you know, follow proper procedure for avoiding infection, to not support media that is putting out that high quality information, that is, is you know, in his view, that's putting people in danger because mm -hmm. if we start to lose the ability to have the financial stability of folks to get that information out mm -hmm. there, well, then where's the information going to come from? You know, conspiracy theorists and other folks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've never seen a, an ad industry executive express things in such a hard term. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and, and I think it's, in some ways, coronavirus may be a turning point for some of that perception in the advertising industry. Well, good, because I don't uh, count on them for too much, uh, frankly, to get too much right. Uh, so I'm glad <laughs> that they're noticing that this is a problem. Of course, I'd rather turn to the people to make this right rather than the uh, ad industry. Uh, you report that some outlets, especially those with, uh, with large subscriber bases, readers or, or listeners in the case of radio and online video and so forth who sign up and pay an automated monthly or yearly fee, etc., that they are better positioned to survive this. Are we talking about only the large, you know, the large corporate outlets like New York Times and Washington Post? Or are you finding that some local and independent news outlets also have enough subscribers to somehow keep going if, as seems the case, this is going to continue for quite a while? So it's definitely... Uh, seen a, a, a surge in subscribers to those those bigger sort of national-oriented outlets, your New York Times, your Washington Post. They have talked about how they're seeing a surge in that kind of, uh, in people signing up for subscriptions. Um, at the same time, they are seeing a decline in digital, and in some cases, it's helping them sort of you know, offset it. In some cases, they're still seeing an overall decline. Now, I've seen and heard from lo- people running local papers, lo- running local organizations and community organizations that, yes, we are seeing an increase in subscribers. But it's just not been enough for them. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the gap is just too big. So it's a phenomenon that I think is, is broadly based, where we are seeing people willing to kind of hand over money and say, I want quality information, I'm willing to pay for it right now. But it's not enough to make up the loss of, of advertising on the digital side and on the print side for the organization. And so it's good news for some, but overall, um, you know, it, it's kind of a, a welcome bit of revenue, but not enough to turn the tide. So I know it feels like uh, a, a drop in the bucket, perhaps, but how important right now would you say that it is for people to, I mean, it, it's in one sense, it's really the only thing that they can do. Uh, you know, they can't go out and, and uh, you know, uh, patronize their advertisers and so forth because the restaurants are closed and everything else. So how important is it for people to subscribe to their uh, uh, to their local or, or even just their favorite media outlets, whether whether local or not. Yeah, I mean, when I when I wrote the story about sort of the extinction event and also the follow up about ad blocking, this is the most common thing I saw people doing on Twitter was sort of citing that reporting and saying this is the moment for you to pay for the media that you care about, and and you know it's about people deciding for themselves what media they want to support. It may, it may not be a big national outlet. It may be a local outlet. It may be a very niche publication that you feel serves you and serves your point of view and information you need. And I do think that if you have money right now, because that is a big if, mm-hmm. a lot of people are struggling, but yep. if you have money and, and you know, you can afford that maybe it's $5, 10 $15 a month, this is the time to stand up and, and show that support. And, you know, a lot of people who are in newsrooms who are getting laid off, who are getting furloughed, who are getting pay cuts, you know, this can make a difference if enough people step up and start to do it. Is there a, uh, a plan, Craig Silverman, in your reporting that is, uh, you know, an organized effort that you know of uh, to, to to help save local journalism that is, uh, you know, just getting devastated or even the corporate journalism that uh, in many places, you know, I noted and you noted that even the New York Times has warned they are taking a hit in local ads. Uh, is there any sort of uh, organized response to this that is gaining any traction? I think I've seen a, a hashtag save journalism out there but is there any actual effort to 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 deal with this or is everybody just sort of in a a panic mode trying to survive at this at this point well there there has been a proposal from some press groups 
about uh, basically, you know, kind of a bailout for journalism. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm based in Canada, and the federal government has provided, uh, promised some funds to help support some uh, newsrooms, news organizations. Oh, sure. R- rub it in, Craig. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> All right. It's a it's a smaller it's a smaller investment they need to make. Okay. <laughs> much smaller. I got gotcha. you. Uh, you know, but but there are some groups trying to kind of lobby the government to say, hey, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, journalists have been declared um, essential workers, meaning that you know we have to continue working during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so, if that is the case, then shouldn't there also be some support to ensure that we can continue to operate these newsrooms? So. You know, there's been some proposals. I don't, I don't know that it's going to go very far because, I mean, let's be honest, uh, Trump uh, is setting aside or even, you know, Republican-controlled Senate setting aside funds to support newsrooms seems unlikely. You know, um, there, there is a strained relationship there. And in many cases, you know, Trump really uh, media bashing is a part of his strategy for election back in 2016 and for re-election. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how far that's going to go. Um, you know, but at the, at the same time, I mean, there I think there are people trying to get things going, as you say, in hashtags, and then there's a lot of industry groups trying to tell people to step up. And I do think, for what it's worth, you know, those ad industry groups shaming and naming and saying you need to do better on this, I think that is maybe going to make some, some of a difference for people to stop keyword blocking, and that could literally result in millions of dollars more flowing back into these organizations next month. Now, I would agree, Craig, but I noticed that in your article on that, on the uh, ad blocking, coronavirus ad blocking is starving some news sites of revenue, that you cite a well-known brand name, but you don't name the brand, as uh, this brand has uh, blocked apparently millions of dollars in uh, in ads. Wh- why don't you name them? Well, I was provided internal ad data mm-hmm. about a, a major global brand in order to kind of show the example of, hey, here's a, here's a brand's product division that spends about $3 million a month on ads. Here's how many of their ads have been blocked on major news sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in the, you know, the first three weeks of March. And the source that provided it to me said, you can't say who the brand is because then they're going to know who gave you the data. Gotcha. And so it's simply a matter, unfortunately, that I have to protect the source on that and could, you know, could only sort of give that this is, you know, major, major global corporation for this product division spending $3 million a month and giving the data on that. Um, it would be great to be able to see um, other big brands and even small brands of how many of their ads have been blocked. And, you know, the truth, the other part of this is that the brand itself probably had no idea the volume of their ads that were being blocked from places like the New York Times mm-hmm. and, and many other places. And so hopefully this caused a lot of people at brands and agencies to say, wait a minute, how many of our ads are being blocked? Because this is the crazy thing. They don't know. They're not necessarily paying attention to that. They just kind of set the keyword block, and then they forget it and go about their business. And that's why it's such a big problem. All right. Well, you can tell me off air, and then I'll go ahead and name and shame <laughs> that company. Uh, before I let you go, Craig, uh, you're also known, uh, as, as Wikipedia claims, as an expert in fake news, meaning debunking and, and, and exposing it, I believe, versus creating it. Uh, have we seen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, someone may want to change that over at Wikipedia. In any event, uh, have we have we seen a spike in uh, in fake news amid this epidemic? And and when it uh, well, when it comes to stuff the president says, I wonder how one can tell the difference. But as far as classic fake news, have we have we seen any uh, any action one way or another um, uh, in this pandemic? Yes, I mean the short answer is yes, and overwhelmingly yes. There is a tremendous amount 
of false or misleading, and in some cases kind of willfully malicious information about, you know, the virus itself, about the response to it, about what people should do. There are a lot of grifters trying to sell people products, trying to tell them, you know, uh, I've seen ads sent out for a miracle immunity oil. Um, there are There is a lot of conflicting and false and, and really just, just a absolutely, you know, clearly bad information out there. And so I really encourage people, uh, you know, in this moment, we all want to get good information and we want to share it with our friends and our family. And if something seems urgent, we want to spread it. You know, if you're getting a, a voice message from, that's coming via text message or, or in a messaging app, if you're getting something that people claim came from a health professional, there's a lot of like viral chain letters um, with advice about how to avoid the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Stick to really authoritative sources. Um, think, you know, go to doctors, go to, go to, you know, health professionals and people who really know what they're talking about, because that's really the most alarming thing around this is there's a lot of advice out there that will give people false confidence to think they can't be infected or that could even hurt them in terms of taking a treatment they think will prevent it. So it's, it's been a huge amount of it. It's a big concern and people should just pause and think about where that piece of information came from that they're looking at. Or go bother Craig Silverman on the Twitters, which is his Twitter handle, Craig Sil Silverman. You can find him there and also at BuzzFeedNews.com. Ask him if that email makes sense, if it's uh, spam or, uh, or if it's something legitimate. I'm sure he's got plenty of free time on his hands. Craig Silverman is the media editor, editor for BuzzFeed News. He's based in Toronto. Craig, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Thank you for having me. You bet. You know, this is one of those moments uh, that y you'd love to say, oh, I want to run away. I want to leave the country, move <laughs> to Canada. Yeah, but we're There's all nowhere in the to same go. boat. Yeah, that's the thing about this planet. There is no place else to go. Not anymore. Nope. All right. Uh, and uh, speaking of uh, no place to go on this entire planet, <laughs> let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with Desi Doyen and our latest Green News report with nothing but good news as usual. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the broadcast. So, you know, while we've been on the air, uh, I think the White House is doing one of their dumb, uh, what do they call it, coronavirus task force. Press briefings. Press briefings. Which is really just a substitute rally for Trump. For yes. Trump to go on for two hours and uh, beat up on journalists and do Spout whatever the nonsense. hell he does. Yes. Uh, tell us lies. And somehow media continue to cover that. I don't understand why. 
Uh, but you noticed a headline uh, uh, of note? Yes, AP reports that the White House is now projecting 100,000 to 240,000 deaths in the United States from the coronavirus pandemic, even if social distancing is maintained. Which is sort of like what they had uh, said yesterday, as yeah, I recall. Yeah, it's, it's a bit bigger than But they've they raised said. the top yeah, end to 240,000. That's if everything goes well, right. as we noted yesterday. So, And I'm sure things will go very well, as they always do, under this presidency, as once again, Desi Doyen, you describe in our latest Green News report. Obama-era rules would roughly double gas mileage in new vehicles by 2025. But the Environmental Protection Agency announced that is too much. Trump officially replaces Obama's clean car rules with much weaker standards. Plastics industry sees profit and opportunity in pandemic. Plus, people will try to use this emergency as an excuse to not act on the climate crisis. Earth Day 2020 goes online as teen climate activist says we must fight the climate crisis and pandemic simultaneously. All of those simultaneous crises and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Neural, instead of serving me a thick milkshake with a paper straw, just dump it on the ground and tell me to go f*** myself. <laughs> hey, kept you from getting a virus, Bill. You're welcome. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic... The Trump administration is finding time to roll back mileage standards... For cars? Really? <laughs> yes. The Trump administration has announced its biggest environmental rollback yet. Yes, amid a global pandemic, they are moving full speed ahead to wipe out an Obama-era rule setting higher tailpipe pollution standards for the nation's vehicle fleet and increased fuel economy standards. Well, I guess there's nothing else that the EPA could possibly figure out to do during a virus crisis? Apparently, they're not that busy. Yeah. Scheduled to take effect in 2020. The higher standards were a major pillar of federal climate policy and had already spurred automakers to ramp up production of electric cars. Some automakers had requested a slight reduction in the rules, but Trump went further, repealing the whole thing. On Tuesday, the Trump EPA issued the much weaker replacement rule, despite the fact that the Trump administration's own analysis of the new rule showed that it would force consumers to shell out more money for gas and would kill 1,400 more Americans prematurely every year with air pollution. So more people are going to die because of what Donald Trump is doing. And it would make climate change worse. And I suspect getting rid of Obama's mileage standards will work out as well as getting rid of Obama's pandemic response team. There you go. Critics do warn that U.S. automakers will be less competitive as the international market shifts to all electric vehicles. Environmental groups say the replacement rule is full of legal holes and they plan to sue. 
Ultimately, this could be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. wonder which way they'll go. The Trump administration is rushing as many rollbacks as possible before the last six months of Trump's current term because that would make it harder for a potential future administration to throw them out. Oh, you mean he's not planning on sticking around for four more years? Just in case. Good. The Trump administration also announced that it is suspending enforcement of many U.S. pollution laws during the coronavirus crisis. Inside Climate News reports that the primary benefit fishery is the oil industry, which asked for a number of waivers, including not having to monitor or report releases of toxic chemicals like benzene, postponing required equipment repairs that would reduce air pollution in nearby communities, and postponing fracking wastewater disposal rules. Now, what would any of those have to do with being in the middle of a pandemic? They could still do those things. It's true, they could. Former EPA officials say the agency's unprecedented suspension is unnecessary because the agency already has discretion to waive penalties in cases of hardship. The plastics industry sees profit in the pandemic, and it's hoping to reverse single-use plastic bag bans that have been implemented by cities and states to reduce costly plastic pollution. Politico reports that the Plastics Industry Association is pushing the Trump Department of Health and Human Services to publicly endorse single-use plastic bags as being more hygienic than reusable bags during the coronavirus pandemic. Let no crisis go to waste. There is little evidence to support that. New Hampshire's Republican governor Governor Chris Sununu has already temporarily banned reusable bags during the pandemic. He's banned reusable bags? Yes. Finally, April 22nd marks the 50th annual Earth Day. But now celebrations of that landmark anniversary will take place online due to the pandemic. Earth Day organizers are planning a three-day digital mobilization, including a 72-hour live-streamed digital march with musical performances and demonstrations of customers cutting up credit cards from financial institutions that finance the fossil fuel industry. In an interview with New Scientist, Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg warned climate campaigners to guard against officials using the pandemic as an excuse to delay cutting emissions. But she also sees a positive lesson in the coronavirus crisis. If one virus can wipe out the entire economy in like in a matter of weeks and shut down societies, then that is a proof that Our societies are not very resilient. It also shows that once we are in an emergency, we we can act and we can change our behavior quickly. Smart kid. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine, too. Oh, yeah. Everything is working out very, very nicely. It's all going very well. Yes. Uh, All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Craig Silverman of BuzzFeed News, and to all of you for spending a portion of your quarantined day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated as ever. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other that we have ever done, you can download it for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And by the way, many of the radio outlets, since we were talking to Craig about independent media trying to survive, many of the radio outlets that carry the broadcast uh, uh, do so thanks to your help, your support, your largesse. Please consider supporting 
Uh, whichever media outlet you may be listening to the broadcast on, they do not pay us to be on uh, their airwaves. It is our honor to be there, uh, and we'd like love them to be there for as long as possible. So please support them. Yes, please. Uh, you can drop me email if you like. I am broadcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. Please find, follow, and share me there. And that's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman, and I mean it. Good luck, world. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine.